Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. Today's episode is brought to you by Lexham Press. Lexham Press seeks to produce works that will increase biblical literacy in conversation with the great tradition of Christian theological reflection. The Lived Theology series explores aspects of Christian doctrine through the eyes of men and women who practiced it. Volumes include Abraham Kuyper, John Chrysostom, Samuel Pierce, and forthcoming volumes on Jonathan Edwards, Irenaeus, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and many more. These books illuminate the vital contributions made by these figures throughout the history of the church. Learn more at lexampress.com. Today's episode is a conversation with Andrew Abernethy and Joshua Jipp about the themes of Messiah in Scripture. So Andy wrote a book on the Old Testament and the Messiah, the expectations for the Messiah who would come. And Josh wrote a book on the Messiah in the New Testament and how those things are fulfilled. So we talked today about their different approaches, where they agree, where they might disagree, and some of the hermeneutical issues that come up here. So what do we do with the New Testament use of the Old Testament? What do we do with the way that the New Testament authors read the Old Testament? What do we do with the idea that Jesus is both God and man? And what does that mean for the idea of Messiah and how he fulfills it? So I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with these two uh, fantastic scholars on a really important topic. As always, we're brought to you by B&H Academic. Go to bhacademic.com to find out more about all their latest offerings and books. We're also brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about this English Bible translation. And now my conversation with Andy Abernethy and Josh Jipp. But first, as always, no big deal. which I don't think I've done before, but these men are just so important and such great scholars and just uh, such big time, big deals that I had to make sure uh, I got both of them together. So uh, I have uh, Andy Abernethy and Josh Jipp on today. And so what we want to do is talk through uh, their two books. So Andy's new book with Gregory Goswell uh, is God's Messiah in the Old Testament from Baker. And then Josh's is the Messianic Theology of the New Testament. Uh, from Erdman's. And uh, this started with, I saw you guys bantering a little bit on Twitter and trolling each other, which uh, it's my love language. And also uh, I get drawn into it because I love trolling so much uh, as, as people know. So um, I think, I think I was bantering and Andy was just being very kind and nice. But. <laughs> Andy. Yeah. He's just, I'm, trying a, to be I'm a middle child. <laughs> <laughs> You're used to this. Yeah. Peace lover. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, you guys were going a little bit back and forth, a, a little bit of nuance, you know, well, I would say this, well, I might say this and uh, Josh said he wanted somebody with a lot of money to put together a symposium and, uh, um, you know, church grammar is a world renowned, um, yeah. podcast that I'm making a lot of money off of. So yeah. I was able to outbid. <laughs> we're, we're grateful for the big stipend. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what I want to do today is just talk through sort of methodologically, what does it mean to talk about the Messiah in the Bible? Uh, Andy is an old Testament scholar. Uh, Josh is a new Testament scholar. So we've got, you know, messianic expectation. You've got uh, fulfillment in Christ. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of conversations about Christotelic readings and Trinitarian readings and just a whole, I mean, it's a whole can of worms we can't get into in, you know, 45 minutes today, but I think it could be helpful for our audience to hear you guys talk through it a little bit. So what I want to do is, is give both of you just a chance to talk through uh, the main theses of your book and then try to set you guys up to, to kind of uh, me to get out of the way a little bit and let you guys kind of talk through your proposals and where you might disagree and stuff like that. So, uh, Andy, if you want to start, uh, God's Messiah in the Old Testament, if you want to start and give just a basic thesis of uh, particularly methodologically, what are you trying to do? What are some of the controls that you have when you think through this? Uh, and then, Josh, you can just hop in uh, right after that. Yeah, great, great questions. Great to be on. And uh, I didn't know you, you knew Josh's nickname in seminary was Big Time. So, <laughs> Josh, <laughs> Big Time, Joe. Um, Andy, Andy and I were classmates, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think your doctoral mentor, Mike Bird, has that same nickname too. Oh, Mike, yeah, yeah. Mike Big Time. But he calls himself that. You know, Josh lets other people call him that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but it's great to be on. And, um, you know, uh, Josh and I, although we're friends, kind of had these books in the works kind of unbeknownst to one another. And I, I, I would just say I have loved reading through Josh's book this week, getting ready for our discussion. We overlap um, a lot, and it, it's pretty cool. So um, 
and I and I'll say to my comments here, I, I co-wrote this book with Greg Goswell. So I can't say my comments are his, you know, I'll just speak off the cuff here. So the, the behind our book, God's Messiah in the Old Testament, we have a couple of things that we're, we're wrestling with. I, I think if your readers did a search on the word like Messiah or anointed one in the Old Testament, you'd be surprised at how few occasions there are of that. And in Isaiah, for instance, there's there's one person called an anointed one, and it's King Cyrus. So yeah. w- when you're thinking about like what counts as messianic or, or a, a prophecy about a messiah, you'll have people like Fitzmaier and other scholars who will kind of look through the Old Testament evidence and say there's really nothing there in the mm-hmm. Old Testament that might like count as me- like a messianic prophecy or, or promise, maybe something in Zechariah, maybe in Daniel, mm-hmm. but but very little. And what what Greg and I tried to do, and, and what, which has been common among Old Testament scholars, is is to shift instead of using the word Messiah, to use this idea of of messianic expectations. Um, and with that idea is. Where do we see hopes for like a coming better king that that is kind of off on the horizon somewhere? And I, I think we use the term messianic expect Messiah in part because of how it developed in the intertestamental period in the New Testament to help kind of categorize what's actually there in the Old Testament. It's just a way, a category of talking about this kind of hope for coming king. So we kind of take a book by book approach where we're not trying to say every passage is saying exactly the same thing about the Messiah, but we ask, okay, what what sort of hopes, expectations are there for how um, a, a king will fit into God's redemptive plans in the Pentateuch? What, what do we see in Judges? What do we see say in first and second Samuel in light of promises to David and how his life's unfolded or how about even in a failing era like the time of the divided kingdom with the kings all these kings are failing there's none of them are clearly a, a you know the saving king but we get a sense that there is an ideal in the back of these authors minds about here's what a great king should be like and maybe there's a hope someday that one of the a king um, would arise. And so we, we kind of take a book by book approach looking at royal um, expectations around the Messiah. Now, now one thing that, that I would say, two things I'd say finally before we throw it back to Josh, um, we tried to distinguish between uh, the royal messianic expectations and other possible expectations that are messianic. Um, it, if you just say messianic expectations and you know Jesus is God and Jesus fulfills all sorts of things, all of a sudden a Christology of the Old Testament turns into an exegesis of every passage of the entire Old Testament. So we've kind of pushed, we've kind of split off, um, kind of not focused on the priestly or the prophetic strands of messianic future hopes, or, uh, and wanted to highlight the the specifically royal elements. We also um, want to dis- place a focus more so on God being king in the Old Testament, who, as he carries out his plans as king, has plans to use a, a, a messianic king. And, of course, in Jesus, these come together, but um, we try to really highlight and capture the, this idea of God's kingship as we think about um, messianic uh, expectations. So. So, Josh, you can take it from there now with, with the New Testament. Okay. Uh, thanks for that, Andy. Um, thanks for the invitation, uh, Brandon. This is this is really fun. I um, yeah, it's kind of crazy. I mean, Andy briefly mentioned, you know, we Andy and I started our MDivs together at TEDS. He's at Wheaton. I'm at TEDS. We should have probably known, you know, that we were working on these same projects. But it, yeah, however long ago it was, you know, I saw God's Messiah in the Old Testament you know, coming out by Andy and was, on the one hand, really sad because my manuscript had been sent off to Erdman's and so it left no opportunity to engage from the work and would have certainly made it better uh, and more robust. 
Uh, but on the other hand, I was thrilled to uh, to have something like this uh, to be able to engage with. And I think I mentioned this briefly, Andy, but I actually, as I was reading it, you know, would take a few notes uh, in terms of uh, how, how, like, I used it sort of as a template for doing evening devotions with my two uh, my two boys. My daughter's not quite at that age where that would work for her. So, you know, we, we started in Genesis and we didn't quite finish, but, you know, the the, the prophets get a little trickier, but um, we had fun with your book in that way. Yeah, so that's my... Awesome. That's awesome, man. That's yeah, so cool. no, that's good. That's good. Uh, they're at school right now. Otherwise, we could, you know, give them a little pop quiz and see what they remember, <laughs> but I'll save it for later. Good book review. So my book, The Messianic Theology of the New Testament, in some ways, I'm trying to do two things. It originates out of, in some ways, a book that I wrote in 2015 called Christ is King, uh, which was a book on Paul's royal ideology, Paul's Christology. And maybe later we'll get into this, but just briefly, I'll say there's a long history of um, scholarship that does not think Christos is a title or an honorific. It's just an, almost like a second name for Jesus. And as a result, there's certainly not that much theological significance wrapped up to, wrapped up in the fact that the undisputed, or is it all the letters refer, you know, in the total is like 270 times they, Paul refers to Jesus with the language of Christos. So in that book, um, uh, and I, I'm basically arguing that that trajectory is wrong. It's been fun to see uh, other conversation partners, some at the same time, some that predated me, like uh, Matt Novenson and Julian Smith, uh, also arguing that, hey, this this term uh, is not just an honorific or a title, but it's theologically robust and significant for what Paul's trying to communicate in his letters. Mm -hmm. So as I was working on Paul and making that argument, of course, in my mind, I have limited myself to Paul, but I'm also thinking about how is this similar and different from Matthew and Messianic Davidic conceptions? How is this similar to Mark? How is this similar to Revelation? How is this, you know, how is it different from, you know, this and that? And um, so in some ways, what I'm doing in the book, I would say, first of all, is, an ex is sort of an extension of Christ as King. At maybe a bit of a more lay le uh, not lay level, seminary pastor kind of audience mm -hmm. uh, in terms of those that would read it and saying, hey, let's Josh, just, let, let yeah. me just jump in, man. I, I read it. It is very readable, man. Oh, thanks. I appreciate great for that. students, but it's, you got a 40 page bibliography. So it, it's <laughs> backed up by some serious research, but, but I would affirm that, man. Well, I really, I really appreciate that. Thanks, Andy. Yeah. The goal, the goal is, I mean, a book, Christ is King is a, at a, pitched at a little higher level. So I was hoping that, I mean, it's already a fat book. I was hoping, you know, it would still be, still be readable. So thanks, Andy. Um, so what I'm trying to do is, in the first instance, say, here is how these 27 texts, or at least major New Testament compositions, um, are theologically and literarily extensions, creative extensions of the basic confession, Jesus is the Messiah. Um, and that is, again, I keep using this phrase, but that actually is theologically generative. They're not just saying, all right, we, we affirm that. Now let's move on to the interesting stuff and talk about logos or priest or, you know, and of course the New Testament does talk about those, but Messiahship itself is something that each New Testament text, uh, outside of maybe second and third John, but don't worry too much about them for this, <laughs> for, for our purposes, uh, is, you know, in many ways like unpacking. So I try to do that. And then secondly, um, I'm trying to provide, I know this maybe is a little bit ambitious to try to do this, but I'm trying to provide an addition, um, one attempt at doing a different kind of theology of the New Testament. Um, I don't want to make this section too long, but I think sometimes theologies of the New Testament now can either be helpful uh, as sort of like glorified theological introductions for pastors or for people that need to teach a, an undergraduate course. Um, but they don't, they, they, but sometimes the big ones, I, I don't think have the same level of um, verve or creativity that are trying to make uh, a robust theological reading of the New Testament. And so mm -hmm. I'm trying to say, listen, here's one way of, without producing a thousand page book, here's one way of how we might go about thinking about a theology of the New Testament. 
unity and diversity is found in they all, for all the things that they're different and have some different things to say, all of them agree Jesus is the Messiah. All of them unpack that in certain ways, but they actually do it in ways that are slightly different from one another. And I mean, for, in you know, I mean, we have four gospels. Matthew does not look like John. Mark does not look like Luke, although they do kind of look like each other, but they, they have, you know, similarities and differences, unity and diversity that you can see at this level. And then the last thing I'll say is the second part of the book uh, is basically a hundred page sort of uh, heuristic exercise, almost like what would we be missing if Jesus' messiahship wasn't informing categories of scripture, Christology, soteriology, and, and, and so forth. And so that's what, uh, that's what I'm trying to do there. Yeah. So, um, now let's get, you guys have been nice to each other enough. I mean, we need a little bit of a, we need a couple of fists to fly and a little bit of bloodshed here pretty soon. So uh, actually we're recording this a day after the siege on the Capitol in DC. So maybe that's not the, not the language we want to use. I mean, I'll pace this out a little bit. Um, okay. So when you guys think about your two approaches, old Testament, new Testament, um, you know, one of the things that I saw on Twitter that uh, when you guys were interacting, I thought it might be helpful to say, okay, let me throw a couple of statements at you and you respond to the statement. And then we'll kind of maybe see where some nuances and differences are here. So um, I'm going to throw this one at, at you, Andy, um, that is from your book. And I want you to kind of respond on what you think. And then Josh, maybe just respond to, to what Andy says and just see if we can get down the road sure. a little bit on a conversation here. So uh, this is one uh, from the book uh, that that was highlighted between you guys when you were talking uh, on Twitter. So I just cheated. And uh, Wikipedia is not my source. It's actually just Twitter. So I don't know if that's <laughs> better or worse. But uh, so this is a quote from uh, Andy's book. And I think you said this was in a, in a chapter that, that um, Greg worked on uh, more specifically. But uh, here's the quote. Everything said of God in the book of Psalms directly applies to Jesus as God's son. So everything said of God in the book of Psalms directly applies to Jesus as God's son. So Andy, once you talk through what that means or what Greg might mean, and then Josh, um, kind of what your reply slash rebuttal might be to that. Yeah. So, so like I said, Greg wrote that chapter, but, but it's a, a statement that, that I could imagine myself making, um, and if I, I think back to kind of whenever we're writing on any of these chapters, you're kind of like, all right, you know, people are going to be throwing shade on us. Like, <laughs> hey, how come you didn't deal with this passage about God? He's clearly produced <laughs> in the New Testament, you know, and yeah. It, and, I'm and, like, that, and I'm now you're getting all this friendly fire from me that's sort of like, uh, hey, we're on the same page, but come on, what was this mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I think I could imagine Greg making that sort of statement like, hey, all of this in the Psalms, as it's speaking about God, could potentially refer to our understanding of who Jesus is. Um, but we're just going to focus more narrowly on... Um, some of the more royal uh, passages. And, and I think what's behind that is, you know, Christopher Seitz has uh, been really helpful with, for me on this, uh, this commitment to divine ontology, uh, a nature of God always being a triune God, um, not just in the New Testament, but even in the Old, that as we're really getting to know God and who he is in the Old Testament, if the father and the son are, are one, if you will, although two persons uh, along with the spirit, we are genuinely getting to know God. Um, so I, I think that's kind of what's behind this is that we're getting a window uh, and really all passages of the nature of, of, of our God, which would include God, the son. Um, so uh, Brandon, you could you could step in and stomp out a little heresy there if you saw any creep in. But uh, Josh, I, I think that's kind of what what we were after. But what I'm I'd love to hear kind of you you had that emoji with with the the emoji guy holding his chin and kind of confused, thinking yeah. about what 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 do I make of this? Tell me what yeah. you were thinking. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, no, and 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 there there is genuinely. I mean, I I have uh, certainly ongoing questions about my own work and my own navigation through some of these things. Um, so it's, it's a genuine, like, this is something I wonder about, or I wrestle with that I haven't don't certainly, I'm not going to claim, uh, uh, 
have have closure on this. But I think so. How would I how, how do I say this? There is um, what when I uh, when I'm re when I'm reading the New Testament. Uh, certainly I'm going to affirm that Jesus is a single subject and he is fully human and he is fully God. But there are things that I think the New Testament, uh, predicates, uh, about his person, um, that he doesn't, that, that don't make sense or aren't to be predicated of the spirit or the father, even though they do, they do their, they do their work together. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, you know, in, in the new Testament, who is, you know, who is the father? The father is the one who sends the son, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the, the son is the one who is of course crucified and resurrected mm -hmm. and enthroned and exalted. And the father, father does that to him. The son is the one who pours forth the spirit. And so I, th I think like I'm, I'm speaking, I was trying to think if I wanted to take this in a more obviously theological route, which is what I'm doing right now, or if I wanted to talk about from more of a new Testament, like kind of historical perspective, but, but as I'm seeing the new Testament, um, use those kinds of claims and that kind of grammar that then makes me wonder about how we then go back to the old Testament and, uh, as a new Testament scholar, and how much are we to make distinctions between what we, you know, see God, what we see the father doing. Um, I think of like Psalm 89, you know, for example, where, uh, the father seems to be the one who has gifted the Davidic figure uh, in verses 20 and following with the ability to rule over the seas, you know? And so there's, there's distinctions yeah. there that make me a little bit just question or wonder if it's appropriate. I don't have that exact quote that Brandon threw out there, but if it's, if it's appropriate or right to, to, to then say everything gets predicated of the son and mm -hmm. without going on uh, or, or of, God, the God, or whichever one it was, without going on too long. This is also some of my ongoing questions about the work of Richard Bauckham, which at times can be helpful, I think, for us and um, uh, enticing, especially for Christians to say, if you adopt Bauckham's approach, then you basically see uh, uh, Jesus is in every way to be uh, identified as God or as identified, you know, uh, yeah, as, as Yahweh, basically. But it doesn't always do a good enough job, his approach. I mean, I hesitate saying this because I, I love his, his work on Christology and almost everything else. But I sometimes wonder if it doesn't distinguish enough between Father, Son, and Spirit, mm -hmm. and both in a way that makes sense to the texts, as as well as in a way that may um, not make sense in terms of the historical realities of one. Yeah. Anyway, so I'll just I'll yeah. just leave that. Yeah. I, I, that that's really helpful. That distinction of what what can we predicate of the Father, Son, and Spirit, while affirming their obvious. Um, lead the one God, uh, might we predicate something uniquely of each person? And, and that'd be a fascinating project. I know Christopher Wright has tried to do that with knowing Jesus through the Old Testament, and then he has his new book, Knowing the Father, then Knowing the Holy Spirit through the Old Testament, mm -hmm. and trying to splice those, those levels out. Um, yeah, so it's tricky. I mean, one of the questions that comes up to me a lot, and Josh and Brandon, you may hear this, students will say, so is God in the Old Testament the Father? Right. When we see Yahweh. Right. And then we get to the New Testament, that's when we see that God is also Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I think it's just, it's tricky. It's almost better to it, it, to me it's almost safer as the old testament scholars say god is god <laughs> <laughs> you know in the old testament you know it, it's god is father son holy spirit when, when we're learning of him yeah and, um but we i think you're right though that we do see certain things predicated of the son especially in the new testament um but for instance i mean what one example and bacham i'm sure picks this up and and um, you touch on it in your book. It's fascinating how Isaiah 40, you know, where, where it's saying um, the voice in the wilderness preparing the way for, for Yahweh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which in 
Greek kurios, the, yeah. the Lord. Yeah. Um, that seems to be referring to Jesus is mm -hmm. coming in, in the person of God in, in the New Testament. And I'm not sure in the Old Testament that someone initially hearing that would be thinking Davidic king, mm -hmm. um, preparing the way for the Lord when God comes. Um, and so, so anyways, so, so it's, uh, it, to me, it, it, it's tricky to know how to yeah. splice that out, but I think your point's an excellent one. Yeah. Of, are, it, it'd be interesting that maybe you and I could write at the end of our careers, uh, biblical theology, uh, you know, where we can kind of try to splice out. Yeah. How do we, how do we speak of father, son, Holy spirit in a consistent way across the canon? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm with you in terms of some of the, some of the challenges. I mean, I don't, you know, I do think that is one of the, you know, one of the things you see, you know, in the New Testament that I don't know if you would just see on a plan, your first reading of Isaiah apart from the Gospels, uh, uh, prepare the way of the Lord. That basically, I mean, I think Cabin Row has done a good job in terms of showing this in the Gospel of Luke, for example. You you have, you know, within the first couple of chapters of Luke, you have two di you have two different kurios, you know, two two kurioi, you know, in terms of, uh, and sometimes it's clearly the God of what we might say Yahweh or the God of Israel that's being described. It's not Jesus, uh, you know, the law of the Lord, so on and so forth. Uh, but then sometimes the kurios, uh, you know, is spoken of as the one that's in uh, Mary's belly, you know, that's spoken, mm -hmm. you know. And so there, there's this, by the time then you get to Luke 3, and there's some of the, uh, uh, exactly the, the Isaiah 40 quote that you mentioned there, you know, the reader's sort of prepared to say, um, uh, this Jesus kurios has some kind of special relationship with this God of Israel kurios. Yeah. If that makes sense. But, yeah, that's yeah. good. Yeah, one of the things in, in my dissertation, working through a Trinitarian reading of Revelation, there's a whole, you're dealing with all the high-low, high-Christology, low-Christology debate. Yeah. And one of the things that, um, in my conclusion, uh, again, hesitant to critique Richard Bauckham and Larry Hurtado, of all yeah. people, but one of the things yeah. that I tried to say there, and this is just to kind of set you guys up, um, you know, one of the things I said in there, you know, there is a, there's two things that go on. There's the historical question and the theological question, which can be separated in the sense that Hurtado is saying, uh, what would the first Christians have thought versus how are we reading it now as right. a, a two Testament canon, right? Um, so there's a historical question of, well, we can see the hymns and we can see the elevation of Christ to an object of worship. And that must mean that he's identified with God and, and Bauckham does the same thing. And I think it serves a, a historical purpose, particularly in the 70s when you've got, um, you know, Bousset basically saying that all the divine stuff comes from the Greeks, not from the Jews, where that's a really helpful uh, thing. But one of the one of the limitations is that, that and I think this is where the, the church fathers actually give us some really good um, uh, terminology and methodology is to say, okay, that's a historical question, but what do we do with the the full text that we have and what are the implications? And so, you know, for some of those, the question of, you know, is uh, Yahweh in the Old Testament the triune God? Well, of course he is. Mm -hmm. Historically speaking, does Matthew walk and talk with Jesus for three years and go, that's got to be him? Like he's doing all the things that all these would-be messiahs don't do. Uh, also, not only that, but clearly like the, you know, Isaiah 40 he seems to be Yahweh returning. Like he's not just a, a dude, not just even the guy who's sitting on David's throne, but there's something more going on here. Um, and that's where I think, you know, Baca, the, the high-low debate generally can be can be uh, not as helpful, right? Because once you've acknowledged that Jesus is to be worshiped, you still have a bunch of texts to deal with where he's doing things that only Yahweh can do and also doing things as a man, as the second Adam. And you get into part of exegesis and some of that kind of stuff. But I think the Messiah question gets complicated because as Josh is kind of noting here, there is the divine Messiah, and then there's also the Davidic Messiah, which at least has some sort of a, of a human earthly element. So, um, so I'll pitch this to you, Josh, and Andy, you can, you can reply uh, as well, but what do you, what, how do you think through some of those issues, right? You do have the issues of, on the one hand, he is uh, this human Messiah who's sitting on David's throne, who's fulfilling these covenants. He's the, the long awaited descendant. Uh, and also, he's very clearly doing things only Yahweh can do. 
Mm-hmm. And how do those two things to you, you know, the early church loved Psalm 110, my Lord says to my Lord and some of that kind of stuff. But how do you deal with some of those disparities when a student asks you, well, he's clearly Yahweh, but then also he's saying he doesn't know the future and you know, all these kind of things. How do you work through, <laughs> yeah. how do you work through some of that in light of his identity and, and his, uh, you know, his, uh, even his ontology? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. <laughs> I threw okay. a, a, that was like 16 questions in uh, one. Yeah. I, I acknowledge. I think... I don't think that the, I don't know, maybe I'll get in trouble for this statement. Andy, feel free to, feel free to tell me what you think about this too. I think like the, uh, I don't think you can just read the divinity of the Messiah off the pages of the Old Testament. Like you start, and I'm not saying you do in the New Testament, but I think as you start to see sort of that pressure and unavoidable sort of like claims, as I was already kind of making with Luke, whether you want to call it, it's pressure, what kind of grammar are we going to use to describe this, or whether it's something that, you know, maybe is a little more direct, like some of the claims that we give and get in the Gospel of John. So my view is, I don't, I don't think like Christology is just this, you know, smooth road from the Old Testament that just inevitably leads into, you know, what what we're now talking about in terms of Jesus as the second person of the Trinity. I do th- so I do think however that w- in the Old Testament you have right the closest of relationship between Yahweh and the Davidic king. Uh the father and the son uh language that's used right right at the in 2 Samuel 7 in the Davidic covenant and all throughout. You have a figure that is elected by God and anointed by God, essentially, to implement his will and his purposes through following the Torah and leading the people in covenantal obedience and doing what uh, what God says. Um, you do have then a, a period of these kings uh, failing to live up to their identity or to their expectation and suffering the consequences of exile. And then it seems to me a heightened expectation that God one day is going to send uh, a Davidic ruler and the Spirit of God will rest upon him so powerfully, Isaiah 11. Or the names that we'll give to him in Isaiah 9 are um, so godlike almost, you know, in terms of closely uh, re- relating him. Or, and I don't want to distract us too much with Daniel 7 language, but, you know, a a relationship between the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man that, again, is just really close. So I do think the Old Testament in many ways, um, like, sets us up and prepares us for this, like, incredibly close covenantal relationship between two persons that then the New Testament uh, uh, unpacks in... um, uh, uh, now, uh, and now, and now it's sort of like, how do I give a rise of early Christian Christology in three minutes, you know, without, <laughs> without, with, without going on too long. But then I think yeah. a combination of factors, you know, the belief that God has sent his final son, his Davidic king, salvation has been mediated through him, resurrection experiences, uh, testimony of the historical Jesus in terms of his his what he said, what he taught, the experience of the Holy Spirit, the belief that no one else is going to provide uh, or need, will need to provide another means of atonement or salvation. You know, I don't I don't have all the historical workings figured out in terms of telling the the historical sort of development of this, but but those sorts of things then I think lead the early Christians to what ends up, you know, we start getting in patristic exegesis. So Andy, what do you, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 man, you, I, I I should have been taking notes there for the second edition of of my book to, uh, (laughs) you, you just sketched that out so beautifully. Um, my, my, my single goal was not to get accused of heresy during that talk. So that's, that's way above and beyond. (laughs) Brandon's the theologian. So I'm keeping it. Yeah. I'm keeping it. I hate, I hate talking with theologians. They always make me so nervous. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, um, I agree. You you know, Isaiah is my expertise area. and, And one of the things that people just push back on me on pretty, you know, if they're willing to be vocal, um, usually they're usually negative people, people who don't like, <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. They have, they have personal problems. I'm sure. Right? I think yeah. there are people who like <laughs> what I do out there, but you usually just hear from people who think I haven't gone far <laughs> enough um, with identifying a, uh, 
this sort of divine Messiah idea in the Old Testament. I, you know, even in Isaiah 9, let's say, where there's those wonderful passages, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. And it just seems to us, oh, this is so clearly talking about a future Davidic or future divine Davidic king. Um, you know, that you read it and you think, well, that that's how names worked back then. You know, oh. Elkanah, you know, um, Hannah's husband is not the God of grace, even though Elkanah means God of grace, right? Um, these are pointing to realities about God. And even in Isaiah 9, 7, you know, you have, after it talks about what, what this Davidic king will do, it says, and the zeal of the Lord will do this. It, 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 or even people will point me to the suffering servant passage. Hey, can't you see it? It's calling the suffering servant the arm of the Lord. Because the passage says, you know, who will, will believe the arm of the Lord unto who has it been revealed? Well, God, there's a, such a close relationship between God and what he's doing through his suffering servant that what takes place through the suffering servant, it's like, whoa, God's arm is being revealed here. But does that mean that Isaiah thought that the suffering servant would be divine? Well, later it says that it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. There's a difference between who the servant is and who God is. And these elements kind of point to such a close relationship. I, I tend to want to kind of preserve um, a little bit of a gap there um, that comes to be clarified and more fully revealed when, when Christ comes and, and it shows himself to be uh, the, this God. So anyways, I, I could go on and on about it, but, but Josh, I, I think you're right in pointing to a closeness in relation. And I got some help from Dan Trier. It's nice to appeal to a theologian um, again. And I said, what do you think about this father son language, you know? And um He's, uh, he's, he said, I don't think it's an ontological description that's happening. Um, he said, he, he agreed with me, and, but he had a statement that really helped me. He said, but we could still see it as preparatory for us understanding the real ontology of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that would yeah. later be revealed. And, mm -hmm. and I found that so, so yeah. helpful. Yeah. And, and it's one that I tend to kind of lean, yeah. lean into. Yeah, no, I would, I would, I would resonate with that too. I mean, it seems as though God is perfectly willing to elect individuals to share in his, in his rule, in my reading at least, of yeah. the Old Testament in a, in a way that is, yeah, his, his covenantal election. Um, but the questions of ontology that we get to may be a little bit different in the New Testament, you know. So, yeah. All right. Hey, Josh, let me let me put a question to you, Brandon. Sorry right. to jump in. All right. Andy's co-hosting uh, Church Grammar today. You guys knew yeah, that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm your new host. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, all right, Josh. So here's the question I think a lot of our listeners have. Uh, question I have. All right. All right. So in the Old Testament, we have a... We have a a lot of what like was it john and james who wanted jesus to give them thrones right next to him when he got into uh -huh, uh -huh. yeah yeah all right we, we have these like passages i mean i really think isaiah 9 isaiah 11 that there's this real hope that there'd be this davidic king who would sit on a throne who would rule uh in the aftermath of god's deliverance from from their enemies you, you know the, this kind of real physical reign and um that the, the messianic king king would have what your work did for me was a beautiful depiction of how jesus's reign is inaugurated in even gr grander sense than those more localized expectations and, and kind of this heavenly rule of jesus and his ascension mm -hmm. um but like how do you think about those sort of more localized kind of ruling and bringing justice and righteousness um, sort of passages where with a king kind of ruling from Jerusalem, et cetera, that, that seem pretty anchored in a physical kind of this worldly 
rea- political reality. Yeah, I guess, I mean, if I'm, if I'm understanding you right, Andy, and feel free to come back, I'll keep it short to make sure I don't answer a question you didn't actually have. I don't know, I guess, you know, I think of, um, I think you can make a case, you're the person that knows the Psalms better than me, but I think you can make a case that when you have these Davidic Psalms, say Psalm 2, um, or Psalm 72, and the the hope for the justice and righteousness of the king to be established, mm-hmm. and those aren't, uh, but there's no king that's on the throne, mm-hmm. but they're still part of your scripture, part of your Bible, whatever, and you're reading them and you're praying them, they produce sort of an eschatological, for some people at least, I'm not saying it for every Second Temple Jew this was the case, or Jew in exile, but quite naturally they did and could lead to like a hope and anticipation and expectation that, yeah, there actually isn't a king on the throne now, but we're living in a period of waiting and hopeful expectation. And I guess, uh, you know, so when I read, uh, um, you know, one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 72, you know, give, uh, you know, your justice to the king, uh, the prayer, and, you know, may he rule in such a way that there is peace and prosperity and flourishing for even the poor, for all people. May it lead to agricultural peace and fertility. Like, when when I read that, I guess I would say... Um, I don't think Paul is invoking this psalm directly, but I think, well, we, we do have a first fruits of that, say in Romans 8, that uh, the experience of the Spirit and the risen Messiah that, you know, uh, shares with us in the hope of resurrection even now, but also then testifies to a expectation and hope that peace and justice and righteousness are going to be reality on a cosmic level. And basically, you know, this is mm-hmm. uh, going to be fulfilled in Revelation 21 and 22. When, yeah. Uh, when, when, yeah. So, so that's, so I don't, yeah, does that make sense? Does that make yeah, sense? Did yeah, I, I, think, I think that makes it sense. And th- that tends to be how I interact with students when they ask this question. Because when we're studying the Old Testament, they're like, but I didn't see Jesus quite do this in his first coming right you know and 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 we we tend to look and you're the axe guy i mean i when the apostles say hey are you gonna right now restore the kingdom of of israel right it didn't don't they say the kingdom of yeah yeah you know where they're thinking of more of a if you will grounded reign of the messiah Mm -hmm. Uh, and um, and I think you're, it's helpful how you how you kind of push that into a cosmic direct and connected to the second coming um, of Christ. So, yeah, although although I would say not only in Paul but also in Acts, there is again, I don't want to get too far off in terms of here's my exegesis of Acts one six through seven, but like I do think maybe the disciples were expecting that, but I think Jesus primarily redirects their attention away from. It's not your business to know times or seasons. This is God's work, but actually there is a restoration and there is kingdom uh, presence that takes place through the first six, seven chapters of yeah. the book of Acts. Yeah. And, and so uh, they're not these obtuse, moronic, you know, sort of like, oh my gosh, can't believe they're asking this question again. Yeah. Um, there, there's a sense in which... Well, the spirit, right? Jesus is raised from the dead. The spirit then comes down from heaven and boom, there are all these different messianic blessings that come upon people from heaven that I think are a real messianic experiential foretaste. Yeah. That of, of of the end. So, yeah, yeah. that's, that's really really good. Brandon, could I be the host again? Sure. Yeah. All right. right. It's your, it's your world, Andy. I'm just living in it, you know? (laughs) All All right. (laughs) Um, I'm used to being first since alphabetical order and all that. Um, all right. Here's one thing that struck me, Josh, in your book. Um, it's not a critique, it's more of a question. It struck me how when you got to the parts, especially in the Gospels, where it's depicting Jesus as the Messianic king who would suffer, it struck me how regularly you were calling attention to the Psalms that portray David as a sufferer. 
and how Jesus kind of comes as this messianic king who fulfills and embodies kind of the suffering ideal that emerges from the portrait of David as sufferer in the Psalter. And I really like that. What I was surprised by, though, is my natural instinct as an Isaiah scholar is to think of of the suffering servant passage. Uh Where, where, like, because I get how Jesus, because here's the thing, and I want you to respond to it. I think the Davidic Psalms and the suffering pattern we see there that Jesus fulfills helps us see how Jesus embodies and experiences all that David did and and then some Uh and how God vindicates his king, kind of a Christus Victor sort of idea. But I'm not sure that David's suffering in the Psalter connects the dots to for the forgiveness of sins. Mm-hmm. idea um i i uh that we see you know paul mentioned in first corinthians 15 or whatever when he's he's talking about the mm-hmm. death of the messiah so I, I i'm just curious of your thoughts on how does the suffering servant passage which i've already heard from a few people they wish i had dealt with that in our our chapter on isaiah where we focus mainly on royal messianic expectations mm-hmm. um and I see the suffering of the Messiah in, in Isaiah 53 as more of a prophetic priestly suffering, not as it, sort of different right. sort of role or purpose yep. than what a, a king would be carrying out. Yeah. Um, so I was just curious what your thoughts are on the whole suffering servant idea and how that fits into, say, the Messiah, your portrayal of the Messiah as a suffering David. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Thanks for that. I, 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 um, there's so much to say there. I don't deny the presence of the suffering servant of Isaiah in the New Testament, but I don't think it's as obviously present as we would expect it to be. So it's obviously Mm -hmm. there in first Peter. It's, I think, traditionally, um, it's it's part of Paul's tradition that he assumes in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, and definitely in Romans 4, 22 through 25. Um, but I don't, and, and obviously there are other Isianic serv- suffering uh, servant songs that are invoked, you know, throughout the four, the four Gospels. But I don't think that the suffering servant is as obvious in those four gospels as one might expect it to be. This this often start this started for me actually a while ago when I was trying to make sense of Jesus' claim. Didn't you know that the Christ must suffer, right, in Luke 24? And went back to uh, collect as much, you know, research that had been done on this. Long story short, found a lot of people saying, well, Jesus is just making this up. There's no such thing as a suffering Messiah, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, and found then some, and other people making the argument for the suffering servant. But I was not convinced uh, of the arguments that were given because they were so general that, you know, I, I felt as though I could latch on to so many obvious quotations from the Psalter. Uh, that aren't disputable, actually, whereas the appeal to Isaiah to make sense of the sufferings of Isaiah 53, the sufferings of the Messiah, remains much more nebulous. Um, uh, so that's, yeah, that's that's my, as an exegete, the main reason yeah. basically why I, you know, and stuck to that. Jesus is quoting this, quoting the Psalms come out of his mouth when he's on the cross, right? Mm-hmm. Different Psalms and different Gospels. Yeah. The yeah. Garden of Gethsemane. He's quoting Psalm forty or forty-one uh, uh, to make to make sense of his sufferings. Give me some of that Isaiah fifty-three. I have no beef with Isaiah fifty-three. It's not as yeah. if I, you know like it or want it to be be there. I just don't see it quite as obviously. So yeah. I won't go into my explanations. Does Jesus interpret the saving significance of his death? Certainly, he does. Uh, in uh, passages related to, you know, uh, at the, 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 the Last Supper with his uh, disciples, uh, as well as when he's explaining his death to the, you know, John and, John and James, who, uh, as you already mentioned, want to take up uh, thrones next to them. Uh, and there's, po- there's possibility, there's, there's some allusions to Isaiah 53 there that might, that might yeah. help us. But. Yeah, yeah, because I, 
I mean, first of all, I, I'm I'm struck by the weight of how much the Psalms are quoted there yeah. to make this suffering Messiah. And it what struck me over the summer for a project I've been uh, that will come out next year. Um, I read Eusebius's um, kind of mm-hmm. defense of the gospel and some work by Tertullian and Justin Martyr. It is striking. They are obsessed with Psalm 45 uh-huh. and Psalm 22. Yeah. Yep. 20, you know, and Isaiah 53 does fit in. Isaiah 7 is huge for them as well. Yeah. Um, but but the Psalms are so big. When I think of the Gospels, you know, I, Ricky Watts has done a little work on this idea of Jesus giving himself as a ransom for many. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of being a quotation there or Jesus yep. not. I think of times when Jesus did not open his mouth amidst his trial. Yeah. I, I in, in the, along with the Lord's supper, so I, I tend to see those elements there. Mm-hmm. But but I, I I was struck again by the weight of what you're what you were pointing to, and I found that really helpful. So yeah, thanks. yeah, yeah, no problem. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna jump back in and, and uh, try to host my podcast again, Andy. So. <laughs> back back to you, Brandon. Yeah. <laughs> now I told you I told Andy beforehand. Feel free to you guys feel free to take the conversation however you want. So that's really helpful. Um, all right, so so kind of a final uh, question shift here. I want you both to respond to um, this question or this type of idea. So one of the big hermeneutical questions we run into when it comes to expectation and fulfillment is the New Testament author's use of the Old Testament. So. When Paul says in Galatians 4, you know, Christ is the rock in the wilderness, this too is an allegory. Uh, when the, the, the New Testament authors do things that just aren't obvious. So sometimes, some of the things we've talked about here, pretty obvious, almost clear, direct quotations. You know, Psalm 22 and Psalm 2 are all over the place. You know, these are some that we just, you can't miss, right? They divided his garments, all that kind of stuff, just right there. But then there's things that Paul does, right, with with uh, Christ as the rock in the wilderness, or uh, even when Jesus talks about the manna from heaven and now the bread is here, and you have all these different things. One of the big debates is at what level do we as Christians on the other side of this, not divinely inspired uh, as the biblical authors are, what freedom or license do we have to follow that hermeneutical method, or do we only stick to whichever examples the New Testament authors already gave us, right? Because if you get into the early church with uh, Irenaeus and, and and onward, they seem to assume at some level, it's not as as, uh, as wild as everybody says it is, but there is a level in which they say, this is a pattern of interpretation that we now can continue on. Mm-hmm. So they feel a little bit more licensed to say, well, this is what Jesus said to do. This is what the apostles said to do. So we're going to do that with more passages. Uh, so I'll, I'll go to you first, Josh, and then Andy, you can reply as well. Uh, to what extent do you think that we have the license to, or or what is our methodology? How is that shaped by the way that they're doing those things that don't seem as obvious, the ways that they're tying together uh, these uh, typological figural type things um, that are not as blatant as we would like them to be? Uh, and what constraint do we have as, as exegetes now? Uh, how much do you think we have the freedom to go beyond that? Yeah, that's a good and tough question. I mean, I, I, uh, cert- I certainly, on the one hand, want to affirm things like the fact that the Holy Spirit continues to lead the church into wisdom and truth, um, and that there is where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. That can obviously be, you know, be abused, taken out of context, but that there, if one understands the subject matter, preferably within the creeds, within a, within the community, and one understands uh, the subject matter of the text, uh, that one is able to have some sense of freedom to um, not go beyond the Bible or beyond the text, but basically to 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 continue the trajectory, uh, continue the practice, basically that and discipline that you've learned the New Testament authors set down. So. I affirm that in principle. I affirm that. I don't, I don't, there, there have been different works I've read on the church fathers that have made me repent of my silly claims that this was just fantastic, silly, you know, exegesis and realized I was the fantastic, silly one that didn't actually understand how they were reading the text. And I don't know if it, we, I can say, yeah, just reproduce what they do. Like that's necessarily the, the right way, but, um, I suppose I wouldn't be true to myself if I didn't say, however, that there are, um, well, maybe this is a critique of new te- some New Testament work, 
the 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 penchant to like actually show that there are identifiable allusions in the text i think you've you, the the um the onus is on you to actually prove that the new testament is really engaging your illusion just because you found a word or a phrase or something. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so I get, sometimes I get nervous or annoyed with that. Sometimes I get annoyed or nervous maybe of those who say, well, we have the freedom that, you know, I was just spoken, you know, speaking about that the spirit's given to us. Therefore, right. I can do a lot of stuff and who are you to say, but the actual understanding of the subject matter of which what the text is talking about just isn't robust or convincing enough to make those uh, those leaps. Um, when I read Justin Martyr's, uh, yeah, um, I'm trying to think of is this is in the dialogue with Trifle or the Apology, or or if I read Irenaeus's little work on the demonstration of the apostolic teaching or whatever it is, and they're engaging in an interpretation of the Old Testament text that the New Testament doesn't use or follow per se, it strikes me as pretty clear. They understand the subject matter of the text, and therefore I'm like really fine with it because it's not fantastical and it's pretty rooted within some concrete understandings of what the text is saying and basically something like the rule of faith. So I'll stop there. Andy, what do you think? Yeah, so I, I'm I'm a rare bird in Old Testament studies. Uh, you know, part of what's behind Old Testament studies is this aim to really almost protect the Old Testament from apostolic readings where, right. where you just <laughs> like, you, you, man, we, we really just got to focus on what the original human author meant. That's what we have to go on. That's what we can be confident in. Um, and we, we shouldn't act like the apostles um, um, do. And it's funny, I mean, not funny, uh, Longenecker, who, who had such an incredible work just tracing out apostolic exegesis. When it comes to the question of, well, should we replicate this today? His answer is yes, when the apostles do grammatical historical exegesis. <laughs> no, when it's any sort of revelatory interpretation. Yeah. It says what we need to emulate from the apostles is their doctrine, not their hermeneutical practices. Mm. But I say, time out, isn't it their doctrine that informs their exegetical practices? You want you the know? answers to the test, but you don't want to have to uh, study for the right method to actually get those answers, you know? Yeah, you know, and so the, I think the doctrines of Scripture point us to wanting to read in light of God who's um, bearing witness to what's happened in Christ. And now in light of the new, I, I think we can see um, uh, or see things even more clearly. What I would say, though, and this is where Brevard Childs and again Christopher Seitz have been so important for me, this idea of a two testament witness to Jesus is huge. It's not a matter of saying, well, let me find what's in the Old Testament in the New. It's more so affirming how does the Old Testament bear witness to the person of Jesus? That's where the connection is. Um, and, and I know that's a subtle distinction maybe for some of the listeners, but for instance, Psalm 8 gets quoted in multiple different ways in connection to Jesus in the New Testament. It's not just one way it bears witness to Jesus. Right. These passages are so rich in how they can show us and reveal who our God, her, our triune God is, who's come in, in Jesus Christ, that, that there, I think the Old Testament really, even without the new, can bear witness to Jesus. Otherwise, why would Paul tell Timothy to continue on in the scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation in Jesus Christ, before the New Testament was even created? They were able to read the Old Testament in light of Christ before there was a New Testament, and they did it in light of um, of Christ as He'd been revealed and finding um, these connections. So, anyways, we have a book coming out that I'm I'm editing with with IVP on reading the major prophets as Christian scripture, 
And there's debate in there. Some will say, we, here's what the apostles did when they read Isaiah. We shouldn't do what the apostles did. That's Paul Wagner. Then I said, no, we should follow in the apostles' footsteps and preaching Isaiah and so forth with all the other major prophets. And it's been a really fun project. Um, and, and so I, I think this question's a really important one, Brandon. So I'm glad you, you brought it up. Josh, do you have any response to that as a, a New Testament guy? No, I, ju- I mean, I'll just say it's, it is refreshing. I, um, I, I think like, you know, we, more collaboration between Old Testament and New Testament in terms of less turf war, more collaboration that we're all after, you know, and, and hopefully taking our bearings from the same, the same subject matter. And so, yeah, I, 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 I appreciate Andy and I appreciate, you know, the, the, the book, I think, um, New Testament scholars would be not only New Testament scholars, but all kinds of Christians would just be really blessed and, and, and edified by it. So, yeah. And, and we should think theologically too, Brandon. I mean, it's sort yeah. of like, you know, I, I, it's, there's a, Obviously, I I hope it came out like that both for Andy and me, uh, even if our discipline is not always forcing us to, um, by the rules of the game necessarily, to engage the formal task of theology, that theology doesn't poison everything. It actually gives us wisdom and grammar and, you know, the ability to clarify and so forth. And so anyway. I'm rambling in terms of saying it's fruitful to hold conversations amongst these questions within different disciplines, and that doesn't always happen. Yeah, and the, and that and I think that's a good uh, a good word there. I mean, the reason why I invited you guys both on is because I, you know, no no uh, surprise to anybody. This is my podcast, so I bring on people that I like and ideas that I think are interesting. So if I don't think it's interesting or helpful or uh, even unchristian, some of the things I read in biblical studies, I wouldn't invite invite you guys on. So, you know, both of what you guys are trying to do, I think for me, um, you know, doing a Trinitarian reading of Revelation, I'm sort of swimming in systematic theology, patristic theology, Second Temple Judaism, uh, New Testament, historical critical. So, I mean, like I had to have swim in all those streams. You know, I'm reading First Enoch one day and I'm reading Athanasius the next. And, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I, to be honest with you, I already kind of knew where I was thinking when I got into it, the more I got into the really sort of hard nosed historical critical that just sort of denies, uh, it's almost like a canonic, uh, hermeneutical mm-hmm. method mm-hmm. just to me is just not fruitful to understanding what, what God is saying in scripture. So what I appreciate so much about you guys is even where we might have some, some nuanced disagreements on, on what text means what and how it's applied. Uh, I think there's a shared um, love for the idea that yes, our triune God has revealed this. And uh, there is a sense in which Christ is, is much more than just a human Messiah, but that there is a divine element to it. Uh, and guys like you help guys like me who are more theologically, more systematically minded uh, to make sure that I'm staying close to the text and being fair to the authors. So I appreciate you guys doing that as well. Well, thanks. Mm-hmm. Can I, can I give a word to some of those PhD students out there? You know, as Brandon mentioned, I mean, if you're in the field of Old Testament studies, New Testament studies, it's really hard to be theological. It's probably easier in the, old, in the New Testament. Um, and you're going to pr- have to produce a thesis that's kind of more grounded in historical critical methodology um, more than likely. Um, and Josh and I are I'm 41. Josh is, I think, 26, Josh. Yeah, yeah. or maybe exactly 41 as well. <laughs> okay, uh, that's right. We're twins. I forgot about yeah. that. Um, you know, we, we've kind of moved beyond the imposter syndrome stage of our career where we're trying to sh- show that we have the chops to do the close textual historical readings and... Um, and I would just encourage you benefit from the, that careful analysis that you're learning, but to realize there's freedom and, and Josh and I and many others are, are paving the way that this can really become a part of your calling, your mission to be theological. And, and I think that your work um, will serve the church well if, if you don't give in to that temptation to feel like you have to push theology um, out as you're doing your work. So, yeah, that's a, I got a lot of, you know, uh, my Dr. Vater was good to say, write this in case you have the worst possible, you know, um, 
you're doing a theological readings, so you're really going to have to to carry in case you get a you know hardcore historical critical person or something like that. Um, but in the end of it, uh, one of the biggest critiques from my examiners was, "Hey, just do what you want to just do what you're doing. Like, stop apologizing because you're actually making it more confusing when you're trying to apologize." to this group over here and you're trying to make this group happy. Uh, and so I wish you had told me that maybe five years ago, but um, the final draft, when I found out, you know, my examiners were, were more uh, going to be more amicable toward my, uh, cause you don't know who they are, you know, in that system until kind of the very end, I was able to go, okay, I'm going to cut this apology over here. Cause I'm just going to be who I'm going to be. And yeah. Yeah. Christian yeah. Reading. so uh, that's a good encouragement. And I would, I would say that to you as somebody who just finished and was beaten to death with that for several years of just trying to make everybody happy instead of writing uh, good theological work the way you want to. So that's Josh, Josh, is it your birthday when you said exactly 41? Are you saying it's your birthday? Well, okay. every day is my, no, uh, yeah, no, it's not my birthday. <laughs> okay, okay. I just want to make sure we didn't miss exactly a happy birthday. 41. Okay. No, let's see. I'm exactly 40. I, I won't, I won't count it out. You'd just, like my, just, be my daughter, new, four and a, a new, 40 and a half. I'm a new 41. Okay. Pretty recent. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, guys, thanks so much for this conversation. I think it was uh, helpful uh, and encouraging. Hopefully uh, people who listen will, will be able to uh, pick up your books and kind of take this conversation from there. So thank you guys so much for, for being on, for being kind to each other. Uh, you know, we didn't really want bloodshed after all. It was it was a good conversation. So thanks, guys. Great. Thanks for having us on, Brandon. Yeah, thank you.